0: Saga, episode two, Between Two Rivers. Quietly, Luke, and stay low, she uttered once again in a low tone, this time in less dire circumstances. Lila Elliston-Hawk, ten years older and quite a bit grayer, whispered to her teenage son as the pair stooped in the tall, swaying grass where the trees gave way to unyielding planes. Now, she whispered with the commanding tone of a drill sergeant, the buck they had been stalking turned toward them, completely oblivious to their presence, and sniffed finely at the air. The heart had been grazing in the early pastures of spring and had lost itself in its famishment. It wasn't quite starved, as only the nubs of ribs protruded from the body, but its hunger was evident and must be satiated. As it dropped its head to take another sweet bite of early clover, the report of a rifle boomed in the vast grassland and shot back an echo. That go subsided as the buck collapsed neatly forward as if preparing to rest with Luke's bullet embedded firmly in its primal brain. That there was a hell of a shot, Luke. I don't know how you make those shots shooting the way you do. You shoot like your da did. Both let the butt ride high in the socket. I was always amazed when that Remington didn't kick him on his ass, gripping it the way you all do. Lila laughed bitterly, and a grim look shadowed across her face. He died shooting, you know. Lila stepped through the underbrush and bracken to where the buck had fallen, about 20 yards ahead of their blind. Luke dutifully followed and unsheathed his father's large hunting knife with the edge as keen as he could keep it. It was a rare occasion that his mother talked about his father's death and Luke was not going to let the opportunity pass. Sticks and twigs, devoid of their foliage, crackled beneath their feet as they walked. What happened to him, ma'am? Luke asked as they reached the buck and began the arduous and dirty process of cleaning it. Luke slit the throat with a learned efficiency and prepared the ropes to drain the blood. As he did so, his eyes pleaded with his mother to tell him of his father's untimely death. His mother had become a fast talker since Eli's departure and she enjoyed shooting the breeze while doing menial chores. Her constant prattle was a way of filling a void that once Eli's voice had filled. She spoke of Eli often, yet never once discussed the details of his death with his only child. She stopped suddenly and turned to face him. Your father was a man of conviction to some and an obstinate bastard to others. Some considered him a hero, others called him a savage. It's all perception, as most things in life are. Take that to the bank. Lila quickly caught her breath before plodding on diligently. Your father, God rest his soul, died on principles. He knew some natives and befriended them. This ultimately led to his demise, a rare occurrence where friendship led to tragedy. I see no reason to revisit that horrible day. All you need to know about your papa is that he was a great man, and that great man is dead, killed by a low-life, no-account fool named Dan Parsons. Lila nodded to the kill. Back to work, Lucas. Luke began to hide the buck and noted the name Dan Parsons. The ghost of history faded out and Luke remembered that ill-fated day. He remembered the day that Lila rushed him out of the house carrying his father's pistols with startling clarity. The almost sepia tone of the harsh afternoon light coming in through the slats, the smell of the venison stew that his mother had been preparing for supper, even the scrape on his knee from falling in the hard dirt outside, all were preserved in the amber of memory. Even at five years old, the sight of his mother standing in the doorway would live with him forever an indelible stain of a memory that no amount of drink would ever drive out. His mother, the dutiful wife, waiting to be called to say goodbye to her husband. He remembered the woman she had been before life's cruel ways had robbed her of what little innocence she had left. Luke contemplated on the woman she had become since Eli's untimely departure. She had never remarried, saying that when she took her vows, she promised herself to only do it once, and Lila Hawk was a woman of her word. She kept the hawk name to both honor her departed love as well as a public insult to Marshall Parsons. Despite the occasional rumor and what passed for her town, Lila lived a proud life with her only son, wearing her widowhood like a badge of honor. She never said such things to Luke, but he knew of her loneliness. He knew she missed a man's touch, the gentle electricity of a calloused hand caressing her. However, Lila was a woman of her word and wouldn't entertain suitors. Luke did not care for such sentimentalities. He had barely known Eli being but five when Parsons shot his father. A bearded face would surface in memories, a vague ghost of features upon it. He remembered a smile with an explosion of red hair, but that was about it. As far as having a father, Luke cared not. Lila had been more than up to the challenge of raising her son in widowhood. Indeed, it even seemed as though she was made for the task. Lila began to teach Luke how to shoot a mere day after Eli's passing. Like his father's passing, Luke remembered little of that day, but it had given him a great ability in marksmanship. Lila started him off shooting small rocks off of Bartleby's outhouse. A five-year-old Luke cried when he missed all six shots until Lila soothed him. That's what practice is for, honey. After 10 years of such practice, Luke could bring down a raven on the wing with ease. While not the quickest among the small community's rabble, Luke was known for his dead-eye aim. Every bullet that he had fired in the past three years found its mark, no matter the machine that fired it. Lila also instructed Luke on all the other skills needed to survive in the great American desert. Besides hunting, Lila taught her boy how to trap fur bearers like the beaver and the woodchuck that dammed the creeks on the outskirts of the property. She taught him to, how to fish the abundant rivers and ponds, oftentimes pointing out ideal conditions for schools to congregate. Since mother taught son early on, Luke would regularly put meat on the table. This arrangement worked out well for Lila who often said, I would rather have hands in the soil than wrapped around a gun butt. Luke also had a bit of a green thumb but would rather find solace in the solitude of the hunt than repetence with his knees in the dirt. Lila did not neglect vital life skills. She taught him how to tell if water was safe to drink, made him memorize the shape, size, and color of 12 edible wild plants, taught him how to splint wounds, and how to start a fire. Her lessons were ranging and various, but all would eventually lead to a man who knew how to get by on his own grit. Ma'am, Luke inquired in a small voice that grew with boldness as the words came tumbling out. When Lila looked up, he continued, "When, when will you ever tell me about that day? His young face adorned with the beginning of whiskers turned red. Despite his embarrassment, he pressed on. When I'm 20, 30, a line on my deathbed, he grimaced at the slight. His mother sighed heavily and and went silent for a moment. A single tear formed at her green eyes that Eli had referred to as the jewels of the Missouri, and she choked back more. In a thick voice that sounded like molasses, she responded, pack it up. On the way home, I'll tell you a story. The hawks lived about a mile east from the place where they had been hunting. The path they followed had begun as a deer run and had been widened slightly by passage of man and beast. The trail meandered through a small valley and over a creek before they would break free and head north on the path of their own foraging. Now, they walked the trail obscured by early weeds as they made their way back to their home nestled between the Wakarusa River and Mount Oread. The deer meat and hide, expertly butchered and packed, rode on buck, their elderly only horse. Brown grass sp- spotted the ground, newly uncovered by the spring thaws. This was not the high prairie of the western plains, but the short grasses of the eastern borders on the west. Trees grew spasmodically in clumps here and there. Thickets stood sentry upon the invading grasslands, but they grew solidly as one coalescing mass as one approached the banks of the Wakarusa. The tree line at the river bank grew larger as they made their way to the river and eventually their small cabin north of the few buildings that passed for the white community out here in Kansas native country. As the cottonwoods and poplars passed and the muddy waters grew ever closer, Lila began to speak. Her voice was hard and she almost spat out the words like a horse's galloping hooves. Her voice remained the same mon- monotone throughout the monologue, however. <clears throat> Your father was a friendly man. He never met a man he didn't like. Dijanos, whites, Negroes, and red men. Matter not to him. Eli would often tell me that the man Jesus said love all and be cussed if he didn't live by those words. The muddy Waukarusso flowed silently beside them. Sticks and detritus bobbed with this low current. The reflection of mother and son was muddy in the cold water. When Eli was a child, he lived west of here, many, many miles, where there are few trees and the grass grew above his head if what he said was true. His father and mother were traders who got by trading between tribes. They passed when he was seven during a tornado and he told me for a while he did fine on his own. For exactly one summer, mind you, he survived on his wits, eating stolen food from the natives and shooting game with stolen ammunition. Your father roamed that summer and it wasn't until October blew out that he realized he needed a warm place for the cruel winters. Luke gently corrected Buck, who had taken an interest in a small mound of grass. Lila paid no mind and continued on. Often while hunting, your father would meet Indian braves on their own expeditions. These men were Shawnee from north of here. He never stole from the Shawnee, mostly because he only met them while hunting. Sometimes they were hunting, other times they wore the war paint. But they never harmed your father. Your father made acquaintance with one of these young braves over the many times they ran into each other. I could never pronounce his native name like Eli could, but your father referred to him as Chris since he would turn out to be your father's savior. Luke interrupted, forgetting his manners and his interest. This tale of his father's boyhood was all new to him, but held little bearing on Eli's demise as far as he could tell. Ma'am, how does this story, as interesting as it may be, pertain to Papa's untimely departure? Lila responded with a ghost of a smile at her son's impatience. Patience, and all will be revealed. Chris took your father to his village away up north. The Shawnee had a township on the banks of the Missouri River, complete with warm earth lodges, and your father stayed the winter through. Chris taught your pa Kanza, and your pa taught Chris God's language. Lila chuckled bitterly. Eli used to tell me stories of some of the shenanigans they got into trying to learn one another. A language barrier can be worse than a wall sometimes, my son. I wander. Anyway, after that winter, Eli decided he rather liked being part of the tribe and decided to stay on with them. The Shawnee had taken Eli on as their own and began to teach him how to hunt, fish, and track. They even taught him how to make war, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Chris's tribe had informally adopted him and he found the home and stability a little boy needs. He had found his true family. Eli stayed with Chris for two years, going on the hunt, learning the heathen's ways, and protecting the village. She laughed sweetly, the antithesis of her cold chuckle earlier. The women took turns raising him and sheltering him. In Shawnee culture, the children belonged to the village as well as the parents, and there was no shortage of squaws willing and able to help rear your paw. The boys became his brothers, and they grew together, learning from the older men how to hunt with the bow, track the faintest prints, find water where none was to be found, and go silently from place to place. They called him half-breed coyote with only the purest respect. The half-breed part is obvious, but they gave him the coyote because he moved so silently when hunting, and his natural desire to survive reminded them of that dog. That's why I only kill coyotes if they're a threat. Otherwise, I'll let him be. She stopped Buck and adjusted the meat and hide, which were slowly slipping over the beast's side to the back. When she was satisfied, she began to walk again and resumed her tale. Eli told me a story often of when he first killed a man. He was not but nine, Near the end of his Indian adventure, as he called it, three fur trappers came to work Shawnee territory on the banks of the mighty Missouri near the Shawnee Lodges. One of the Braves, who was out hunting and minding his own, stumbled across them and was shot dead. Perhaps he scared them. Perhaps they were just no account, but they killed him all the same. When he didn't return, your father set out with a group of searchers. His party found the dead Brave a short distance from the trapper camp. By this point, Luke's eyes were wide and intense as he followed the story with deep focus. All of this was new to him. They returned that very night to make war on the murderers. There would be no parley. There would be no talk of peace with these brigands. The only recompense was blood for the invaders. They killed the brave, which to them was an act of war. It was a small party of the most distinguished five warriors and little Eli slipped along with them unnoticed, carrying his own hatchet with the razor edge he honed himself, his bow he made by hand, and five arrows he had fletched early in the day. Lila's voice dropped with suspense as she saw she had fully caught her son's interest. When the scouts arrived, they only saw two sleeping and had no way of knowing if there were any more. They crept around the, tra- they crept around the trappers, flanking them in the dying light of the fire. They had missed the lookout, dozing in a low-hanging tree branch some eight feet up. The man wasn't asleep yet and still had some of his faculties. The Braves were unaware when the lookout took aim at runs with knives. Young Eli wasn't, though, and he sent a silent arrow through the man's eye. One shot was all it took, and he said that he only saw the man because the fire reflected in the gentleman's canteen. The kill shot was a lucky one, he told me. But it was the only one that mattered. The Braves captured the others and allowed them safe passage to their trading company with the understanding that blood for blood had been paid and those hunting grounds were the Shawnees. But thanks to that one shot, not one of the Shawnee took a scratch that night. Lila looked at Luke with frank honesty. I hope you would do the same, son of mine. Not that I condone violence necessarily, but at times it becomes necessary. She smiled when he muttered a, yes, ma'am. He never took pride in any kill he ever made, including that one. The trappers were adamant that they meant no harm, and all was a horrible misfortune. They left for the upper Missouri that very morning. You see, retribution isn't always justice, yet sometimes it is. I get away from myself. The Shawnee saw blood paid equally and let them go, but not without some slick translating. She took a breath and continued on. Shortly after that incident, a marshal came through on the heels of some bandit or another and noticed your father's blonde hair. Your father, being but nine, was unable to resist the sheriff when he was remanded into his custody. He tried, though. Got so bad that the marshal threatened to whoop him and cuff him. The sheriff put him up with a good Christian family near Westport, Missouri. A doctor named Samuels and his wife took him in and raised him to manhood in the ways of the white society. The brackish water bubbled and whirled as they walked beside it. The day had cleared a bit and traces of sunlight were peeking playfully through the clouds, as if in celebration of the oncoming summer. The horse chuffed as they walked, interrupting Lila as she spoke. You wanted to know how this all came into your father's death, eh? Well, it was his upbringing with the Shawnee that eventually did for him. He always remembered his days in the teepees and lodges of his kind of people, as he called them. The tribe was more of a family to him than Doc Sams and his wife. Ever since those days, he's been a friend to the red men. Eli would still ride out on buffalo hunts, and twice he banded with his old tribe against invading Pawnee. Then he said even the tribe couldn't get him back to the killing fields. They were willing to make him an honorary warrior, but he wouldn't let him. He'd aid in a bet to their heart's content, but he'd never again draw a bow or slap iron on a red man of any nation. Lila paused for a breath and continuing as she cleared the path for Buck by shoving back freewheeling branches. He would help them build lodges if needed. Once, when you were a bun in the oven, he left for a month up north to help put up some lodges after a twister ripped up his hometown. My, was I mad, Lila laughed in bittersweet memory despite herself. I told him I was eight months pregnant and be damned if he was gonna leave me. We argued ever so much, and that was when I learned everything what I just told you. Up until then, all I knew of was the good doctor. Naturally, I relented, and Eli went to help his people. It took him a fortnight, but he made, he made it back for your labor by mere hours. Lila skillfully led Buck around a small, stagnating pool of water in the trail, which had attracted more than a few early mosquitoes and midges. The bugs pestered them for a short while before returning to their tepid wallow. Lila paid no mind to the bugs lighting upon her neck and face. To Lila Hawk, mosquitoes were just another daily fact of life out here in the bush. She continued nonchalantly. But I stray. Back in 39, Fort Reed Township, far north on the Missouri River, was having a quarrel with the Shawnee over land rights. Hunters and trappers found their winter home suitable for a trapper camp and asked Dan Parsons, the local justice of the peace, to negotiate the matter. Parsons thought warfare a bad idea, seeing as though the natives outnumbered the citizens by two to one, and bloodshed would deplete his populace as well as more than likely separate his own be head from his person this was before parsons and your father fell out until then they were cordial colleagues businessmen in their own right who both gave each other their proper dues they were not friends but they also held no ill will toward one another the natives traded with fort reed for things that were scarce in their camp Eli frowned about it but Jackson would sell the natives liquor and tobacco and trade for pelts and this occurred at our store since Eli could speak their language. There was a bustling trade between the peoples and Eli got a piece of it, namely the red custom. When you were just a sprat we We owned a trading post near Jackson's first store and often supplied the Indians. We trade beads, sugars, rifles and cartridges to the natives and made a comfortable life doing so. We never sold them liquor, but we did sell them ceremonial tobacco for use in their rituals. It was a good life, until that damn trapper camp went up. Parsons went and talked to Chief Big Wolf. Big Wolf was one of the young men who taught Eli in his youth, but no one knew, and Parsons went instead. The chief was told that all trading between the people would cease unless the camp stayed, and a promise of good faith and peace put forth. The Chief Big Wolf was proud and refused, as him and his people saw it as their lands and the white men as the trespassers. Big Wolf al- was also insulted the Parsons had come instead of sending my father, who respected their ways. Parson went to all the vendors in town and told them they must cease trade with the Shawnee. Few resisted this order. Those that did came around after the situation was explained. All but your father, your stubborn ass of a father, she trailed off wistfully for a moment before resuming her tale. The majority of our customers were indigent. The local Christians refused, for the most part, barring exceptions like Bartleby, to shop with us due to Eli's closeness with the Men. And such, if Parsons' order was obeyed, it would have hit us particularly hard. She grimaced as she remembered that time. I did all our books, and if we lost the Shawnee, we lost our entire stake. Eli and I had talked about moving south and setting up a claim near a large hill at the confluence of these rivers. we had actually begun proceedings to liquidate the store and light out when this whole mess unfolded before us, dashing our plans. Nonetheless, Eli, being a man of grit, refused to abandon his beliefs. When Parsons came round to the store, they had sharp words and your papa did not concede. Eli told me later that they began civil, but ended quite coldly. Your dad was no diplomat, kid. She deadpanned. The next day, Parsons again approached your father, this time with the town ordinance that was hastily writ and signed in the dead of night, citing the ban and trade. Your father was sitting down for a trim at the barber when Parsons walked up. Pete, the barber, told me what happened. It seemed that Parsons shoved the writ in Eli's face and insulted your father. Eli said nothing as he carefully removed the barber's sheet and collar before beating Parsons soundly. Before he left, Eli took a straight razor to Parsons' throat and informed him that... that we were intending to leave in less than a week and warned him off of us. It was early the next day when Parsons wrote out a warrant for the altercation the day before, rounded up a posse of two other men, rode up to our claim and shot your father as he fought against arrest and being strung up for attempted murder of a justice. Lila cast her green eyes downward. So are you sated, little one? Those wounds are still fresh to me, so I do truly hope you are. I never intend to again relive that day." Lucas had far more questions, but knew enough to hold his tongue. He was a loving son and did not want to cause his mother any undue pain. Yes, am she looked at him balefully and nodded in front of them. Good. Look, there's the cabin. The next day dawned, clear and cold. The breezy light winds of yesterday had given to a blustery spring blow whipping up dervishes and dust devils in the lane. The sun, which had provided a comfortable warmth as Lila and Luke walked the trail the day before, had become a non-factor as the winds blew chilly. The weather in these parts was unpredictable from day to day or even hour to hour. The joke among locals was, if you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes. Luke woke quickly with the cold sun and set about his morning chores. The boy made little effort at being quiet Lila would awaken on her own soon he made his pallet neat and then went to fetch water from the rudimentary well behind the shack he relieved himself off the porch and heard his mother stirring in the house behind him good morning ma'am Luke threw back over his shoulder as he finished up business Lila grunted a reply Luke was an early riser like his father but his mother would take her time if there were no if there were no chores to do Luke went to the hole in the ground and threw the bucket into it, listening for the splash. He drew the water quickly. He still had much to do before breakfast, and Lila was waiting for the water to make coffee and victuals. Luke took the bucket to the porch and set it down. In a minute, Lila would come out and take care of it from there. He made his way to Buck's pen and tossed in some hay from the pail and tossed in some hay from the pile with the rusty pitchfork. "Damned horse gets to eat before I do." Egregious. Luke thought smarmily to himself. Despite his thoughts, he knew the importance of taking care of the livestock and didn't really begrudge the chores. Usually, he rejoiced in the care of Buck, especially since he felt a sort of wild kinship with the old horse. The boy went around to the back of Buck's small shed where a crude coop had been built under a lean-to. He carefully took four eggs from the coop without disturbing the three of their six chickens, which were still roosting. The eggs went into a basket hanging beside the coop and the basket went to the same spot on the porch where the water bucket had been a few minutes previously. Luke finished up his chores around the yard and then made for the house and the pleasing aroma of coffee that was wafting from it. As he stepped inside, Lila handed him a large, tanned hide mug of strong black coffee. Drink up, we're going to town today. After breakfast, I need you to load up the hides in the wagon. Don't forget the couple in the cellar. Vittles will be ready soon. She sipped from her own mug and returned to cooking breakfast. Going into town was a significant event for Luke. They only went into town once a month or so, and it was the only real contact Luke had with the outside world. Occasionally a weary traveler would stop by the home place, but those visits were rare since Lila had gone to extreme lengths to isolate her claim from the major car paths and ancient trade roads. The only way to hear the latest news of what was going on was to go into town not to mention his desire for company of his own gender. When it came to civilization, Lucas led a sheltered life. He may have known how to follow a scat trail or flay a deer, but once put in the company of others, he became a fish out of water. Despite his insecurities, Luke still wished for human contact, but especially that of other males. He loved and respected his mother very much, yet he felt his days in her house were numbered. They got along well, but Luke was aware that he was almost a grown man. As of late, he'd been spending a lot of time out on the range with nothing but his gear. He would ride off in no particular direction until he found a suitable spot where he would make camp for a few days. If the game was plentiful, he would hunt. If the fauna was shy, he would stay the night and ride home the next morning. Lila allowed these excursions for a few reasons. Firstly, Luke often brought home fresh meat and pelts, which could then be traded or used for supplies. She also, valued his cl- she also valued his closeness with the land, which was so much like his father's. On top of that, Luke always knew the movement of the local animals, making their joint hunting trips even more profitable. Lastly, Lila knew her boy was almost a man and needed to be out on his own. For that same reason, Lila always brought her boy with her to market in town. Luke finished his chores and headed back to the house. As he walked by Buck's stable, he said to the horse, We're going towning today. Hope you're ready to pull. Buck, indifferent to the chore, just whinnied. Stupid beast, Luke thought, not unkindly, and ruffled Buck's mane. He went on to the cabin, unaware that this would be his last morning as a resident. Lila Hawk's house was small by local standards. It was a tiny shack, built out of river timber, sod, and the grit of a mother and her son. Lila took right to business after her husband's death and found it no issue to build a home for the remains of her family once they left Missouri territory. The rough clapboards, which perhaps once held the color of the whitewash Luke had slopped on, but now faded dull by the sun, were uneven and solid. The cracks were sealed by a mixture of pitch and mud cooked over a flame, which held in the heat provided by the fireplace. The roof was slanted slightly against the rain and was made of the same worn out clapboards. A small brick chimney zagged precariously over the boards. The inside was a large single room with a corner sectioned off as a kitchen. The Hawk homestead had one door that let out on a narrow low porch that was just wide enough for two men to walk abreast. It was to this porch where Luke took his breakfast. Luke often broke his bread out on the porch, even in sour weather. When asked about his preference for the splinters and elements, he replied, I never right thought about it. I guess I feel penned up when there's a roof over my head." Lila found this to also be endearing, for her late husband was often fond of saying the same thing in different words. As with the ranging, Luke just preferred being outside over being in. The enticing aroma of eggs and bacon wafted up from the battered tin plate he precariously balanced on his knees. His stomach grumbled at the smells, and Luke dove into the grub. He ate quickly and followed the fresh eggs and bacon with the steaming cup of coffee that his mother had silently refilled as he was eating. As he stood up with an empty plate in his hand, he let loose a resounding belch. Off to market, Luke thought to himself while Lila yelled through the open door, I heard that, mister. An American Saga, Go West, Young Man, by C. A. Weissmiller, copyright 2013 podcast brought to you by 419 media got a minute